Amen. Would you remain standing as we give attention to a portion of our passage today that we're going to be studying? Let's start with Judges chapter 19, just the first part of verse 1. The scripture says, now in those days, Israel has no king. And then here's the final verse of the book of Judges. Uh, See if you hear a, a common theme here. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The word of God to you today. You can be seated. Well, good morning, New City. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at New City, and so grateful to have you worshiping with us today. Uh, If it's your first time, I hope it won't be your last time, and just know that you are most welcome here. We're so grateful to have you. We are finishing a study that we've been walking through uh, since the beginning of September, if you can believe it, and we're finishing today our study of the book of Judges. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to encourage you to open to the, the conclusion of the book, which is found in chapters 19 through 21. And we heard a couple of those verses uh, today in our reading. And actually, uh, 19 verse 1 and 21 25 are the beginning verse and the final verse of the conclusion. And again, you, you heard a common theme that the author of the book of Judges, most likely uh, the prophet Samuel, uh, comprised the book of Judges together. And he chooses to finish, to conclude the book with this theme of Israel having no king. And so this is a very generous way, if you're taking notes, um, this is a generous way, I think, for Samuel to describe the state of Israel, God's people, and what's happening as we come to the end of the book of Judges, just to say that there was no king. And I'll get to that in just a minute about why that was such a a generous and kind way to describe the state of affairs uh, in the book of Israel during that time. But just for context, again, if you're taking notes, if you've been journeying with us, uh, just to set this final conclusion in context, and if this is your first time, I wanna encourage you to go back. All the messages are available online and you can, you can catch up with us. But the book of Judges takes place somewhere between uh, 1300 BC and approximately 1050 BC. So over the course of about 300 years. And when we get to the conclusion, we're just before 1050 BC, which is a very important date in the Hebrew Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, because of why? Does anyone know uh, 1050 BC? 1050 BC was when the first king of Israel was inaugurated, King Saul. And so uh, Judges concludes just before the inauguration of the monarchy in Israel. And what's really interesting about this is both of the, 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 the tribes and the city where this first king, Saul, was inaugurated take place or they are mentioned in the conclusion of the book of Judges. So Saul was from a place called Gibeah, if you're taking notes. And the name Saul, the first king of Israel, means you got what you asked for. So if your name's Saul, I'm sorry to tell you that's what your name means. You got what you asked for. Or have it your way. You know, kind of a Burger King theology here. Where God gives the people what they want. They think the solution to all of their problems and their darkness is going to be an earthly king. And so God says in 1050 BC, have it your way. You got what you asked for, and his name is Saul. And he's from the town of Gibeah. And uh, more specifically, he was from the tribe. There's 12 tribes in Israel that have set up sort of shop in the promised land. And uh, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And again, these are, these are star characters in the conclusion of the book of Judges, which is just so interesting how the Bible, from start to finish, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, tell one redemptive story. The story of King Jesus coming to rescue his people. So even in the conclusion of the book of Judges in chapters 19 through 21, we see little hints of what is to come. And one of those is this town of Gibeah that's the site in chapter 19 in Judges of a horrific crime. And the Benjamites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, perpetuating that and protecting this crime, which we'll get into. And this gives a foreshadow of God's rejection of Saul as king, this one that the people had asked for, and his favor for the next king, whose name was David. And where does David come from? Judah, the tribe of Judah, which Jesus will come from, and more specifically, the little town of Bethlehem, which will be a main uh, theme for our, our Advent series coming up. So it's just so interesting that at the end of Judges that we see Gibeah uh, as, a, as a character, you know, just the town itself and this, the scene of this horrific crime, and we see Bethlehem both mentioned in the conclusion because it's a foreshadow of the coming monarchy in Israel, of Saul himself, but even more importantly of the eternal monarchy, King Jesus coming to earth. And so Gibeah, the site of this evil crime, and Bethlehem, where the, the, the victim of the crime comes from. Interesting, right? Where does the victim of the crime of Easter come from? Bethlehem. And so even in the conclusion of the judges, it's a foreshadow, I want you to see, of Jesus of him coming to us to rescue us from this, this darkness and this evil. Now let's come back to the theme of how Samuel chooses, most likely Samuel chooses, to conclude the book of Judges. The book of Judges has two conclusions, it has two introductions. And how he chooses to conclude with the opening verse and the closing verse is this theme, this statement of Israel had no king. And I said, that's a really kind, generous way to tell the story. Well, why is that? Well, Israel had a king. Israel always had a king, just not an earthly one. The way that Israel was set up as a people of God is a theocracy, meaning that God was the king. He was the authority. And so what we see is it's not just that there wasn't a king or that there just, there just isn't a God to worship. If there was a God, we'd worship him, but there's just not one, so we have to do whatever we want to do. No. This is a very kind way to say that God was rejected as king. So really what's happening all throughout the book of Judges, all 21 chapters from start to finish in every episode is the continual rejection of Israel, God's people, of their king, the one true God, the Sabbath king who set himself up over as the authority and the creator of all of the world. And we've talked about throughout this series, it's so interesting, again, how all the scriptures are connected, how the book of Judges and all of its judge cycles and episodes is the uncreation of Israel and God's perfect order in the world. So Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God creating his world, and at the end of the sixth creation day, God says it was very good, everything that he looked upon. And on the seventh day, all of creation rested under its Sabbath king, its ruler and authority, the one true God, the one true king. And the book of Judges is the undoing of all of that. 
Now, interestingly, there are six major judge cycles in the book of Judges. There's more than six judges. There's over 12 judges that we've studied, but there's six major judges that comprise this cycle that goes around and around. And so every time we spin through one of these judge cycles, it's more of an uncreation or an undoing, an unraveling of what God had set into place, his good and perfect order. So again, when we say, hey, there was no king in Israel, again, that's a very generous way to describe the actual rejection of God as our Sabbath king. Now, everyone watch this. When the one true God, the creator of the world, the king of kings, isn't our authority, right? Everything else in his created order is not operating the way that God intended it to. From creation, uh, or from every, every part of creation, from um, you know, the, the plants, the animals, uh, the, the crown of his creation, people, none of them are operating the way that God intended him to. And when we look at our world today and we go, why are there hurricanes, natural disasters? Why do people behave the way they do? Why does creation itself rebel against God? Because we're not living underneath his authority. And the world, I think you would agree with me, wherever you might be on the faith spectrum, whether you've been following Jesus for a while, you're just starting, you're just returning, you're exploring a relationship with God and what that means, so glad that you're here. But let's just all agree on this, that God's created world that we're living in today is not operating the way that God intended it to. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the the creation order and the way that God intends for creation to worship him and to live under the safety and the protection and the shalom, the rest of his order. But in the rejection of God as king and people doing whatever they wanted to do, that there was no king, which is, again, a generous way to say we've rejected the king of kings. Everything spirals into chaos, and that's what we see happening in the book of Judges. Now, see if you agree with me or you can disagree with me on this. When Samuel says, in those days there was no king, again, a very kind way to say, well, you've Heismaned the king of kings. You've rejected him, right? Um, We always tell ourselves a better version of our story than than what is really true. Nobody does that? We We always kind of slant the truth when we're the hero of the story, when it's about us, right? And typically when it's about someone else, we make it worse. But when Israel is telling their own story, even Samuel himself, right, he's describing this in a much more palatable way. And we can do the same thing and not come to terms with what is actually happening here, the depravity and the darkness and the deceit of what the rejection of God leads us to in our world. And this is very dangerous. In fact, what do you think is more dangerous, okay? What do you think is more dangerous? Atheism, which says there is no God. Just this understanding and this worldview that there is no God, no God to be known. So the belief that that you can't believe in God because he doesn't exist. Agnosticism, is this more dangerous? Agnosticism being, well, there is a God, but we can't know him. We can't have a relationship with him. He hasn't revealed himself to us through creation or certainly not through his son, Jesus. So we can't have a relationship. We can't know God. We can't know the truth of God. Certainly we can't live by the truth and the authority of God. Or, this is my word, anythingism. Anythingism, which is there is a God and I'm, 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 I'm God. 
or your God. So it's whoever or whatever I want it to be. I determine who my, my authority, my, my higher power is. I, I, I would submit that anythingism is just a more palatable form of atheism. So, so let me play this out. Because, by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. This goes all the way back to the original rebellion in Genesis 3, where humanity, our representatives, Adam and Eve, rejected God, and it started with a lie. Did God really say, which was a direct affront to God's authority, the way God set up his creation? And the enemy comes in and says, is that really true? Did God really say that? And then he says, you know, uh, if, you, if you take of this fruit and you just do what you want to do and you're your own God, you'll be like God. You'll be your own God. And so this, this whole idea of, well, there, there is a God, but we can't know them. And, and actually, I'm going to act like I'm God and, and you can be your own God and you can do, do whatever you want to do. No, it all goes back to the rejection of King Jesus, of God as our authority, our creator, the King of Kings. Now, let me get really vivid here. In an interview with Rolling Stone a, a, a few years ago, Marilyn Manson, who is the next in line to be the leader of the satanic church, had no idea that the Church of Satan does succession planning, but he is the, the next leader, supposedly, of the Church of Satan, which is a real thing. He was interviewed by Rolling Stone about this. And this is what he said. I think it's fascinating. He's asked about his belief in the devil. Now, he's the next leader of the church of Satan, those who worship the evil one. And this is what he says. He says, you know, I don't really believe there's a Satan. And by the way, you may not believe that there's a Satan, but listen to everybody in here, every, every eye on me for just a second. He believes in you. He's watching you. So Marilyn Manson, who, you know, the next leader of the church of Satan, he says, I, you know, I don't, I don't really believe there's a devil. I don't really believe there's an actual Satan. Here's what I believe. You ready? This is like, this is like you're on the, if you watch one of your football teams yesterday, this is like you're on the headset as a coach and your opposing team on the other side, right, you somehow tap into their headset, and you're listening to all their plays and their conversation. We're listening to our enemy here. This is what Manson says. He says, I here's what I believe. Don't, I don't believe there's a real devil. I don't believe there's a real Satan. Here's what I believe. I believe you are God. And I believe I am God. And everybody does what they think is best. In those days, there was no king and everyone did what they thought right in their own eyes. Guys, there's nothing new under the sun. He's parroting exactly what's happening in the book of Judges. And throughout this series, I've never preached on the book of Judges from start to finish, right? And it's been such an adventure, and I've learned so much. I hope it's been a blessing to you. But part of the reason why we did this series is that right there. This understanding of how the enemy gets in and deceives us and makes us reject God as our Sabbath king, the one that we find peace and shalom in, and how everything devolves into chaos when we don't live as God, with God as our, as our king. 
And I think you would agree with me that you know, the book of Judges took place 3,000 years ago, that the same sin and depravity and darkness and cycle that they find themselves in with rejecting God is the same one that we find ourselves in today. God's creation in rebellion against him. There's movements in the book of Judges. If, if you're a person that lear, learns with you know, visuals, let me give you a visual to hold on to for the book of Judges as you maybe go back and listen or you think back on this series, this teaching together. We've talked about how the book of Judges is like a cycle and our metaphor has been this Ferris wheel, right? That just goes around and around and around. I told the story in the opening message about the Frenzoid at Carowinds and, and getting on it and feeling sick and then I'll never ride it again. I'll never do that again. God, if you get me off this ride, I'll never get on it again. And then after some funnel cakes and walking around, let's get back in in line and ride it again. And thankfully they tore it down. It's not there anymore. But but getting on this, this sick cycle carousel over and over again, and it's a powerful metaphor of a sin cycle and riding this ride because it's the same cycle that many of us are on today. In your own life right now, in a relationship, and something in your life, you might find yourself right in the middle of this cycle. So again, if you're taking notes, maybe, maybe this is a good visual to think about the book of Judges. And we've talked through this before, this judge cycle that begins with people rejecting God, with simple rebellion, which is how all of this began in Genesis 3. God creates the world in six days. It rests under his authority, which again, we only find rest when we find it in God when we rest under his authority. By the way, go pick one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and listen to the words of Jesus. And when you go through and read, just read one of the gospels. And I want you to circle how many times Jesus says the word authority. You'll be shocked. How many times Jesus talks about authority and the authority that he's operating out of. In fact, his final words, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. In other words, I'm the king, and I'm giving a command to my people. But the whole judges cycle, again, if you're taking notes and you need a visual, this spiraling, these two movements of judges, right? This this circling and spiraling, circling the people rebel, Right? God is angry because God's a jealous God. He, he, in other words, he wants the attention, the affection of his people. And so he gives them over, have it your way. He gives people over to their vices. He remains faithful to them. He continues to journey with them, but he gives them over to their choices the same way he does for us. And there's consequences to our sin. And here's the deal, guys, by the way. You might choose to rebel against God, but you don't get to choose what the consequences are. You have a choice over your action, your word, your thought, but when it leaves you, it's it's beyond your control. And so the people find themselves the consequences for that that rebellion and God's anger and giving them over to their their enemies and the oppression and subjugation to their fellow nations around them. And they... They, they, it gets so desperate throughout the, 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 the scriptures here and Judges and these episodes that we walk through, this desperation, you know, whether it's hunger or spiritual you know, darkness, they, they cry out to God. In other words, they, they turn to God, which is important because turning to God represents this idea of repentance. The word repent, if you've heard that word, means to turn. And by the way, that was the simple message of Jesus 
repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is near. In other words, the king is here, putting everything back in order like it was before the rebellion. So you should turn, you should repent. And if there's a single message to come out of today from our study of Judges, in, in the, the midst of this Advent season as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, it's repent. Turn back to God in your life. Make the next godly decision in your life. Turn from whatever is holding you, trapping you, keeping you away from God, rebelling against God. The people repent, they cry out to God. And God's faithfulness all throughout the scriptures here, but especially in the book of Judges, we've seen him raise up these judges. And remember, the word judge in the Hebrew is not like a a, a litigator with a robe, right? It's a deliverer. That's what the word judge means, deliverer or redeemer. So it's, this, it's, it's, it's these little miniature uh, Jesus figures that, that are continuing to bring redemption and hope and deliverance to God's people, as flawed as they are. And believe me, if you've been walking in this series, they're flawed, right? They're really broken people. And there's some hope here that God can use messed up people, just like us, for his purposes. And so that's what happens. And there's peace. Again, the, the right order is restored where King Jesus is our ruler. We're looking to him for how to live. And here's the deal, guys. Again, just as a visual, when this is right in your life, when, when the vertical is right in your life, your relationship with God, this gets right. When this isn't right, this can never be right. You know, even in our culture, society right now, the highest value is tolerance, which is a cheap substitute for love. How many of you have been on a romantic uh, date with your significant other and you've looked at them and said, you know, I just, I just gotta tell you, babe, I just really tolerate you. <laughs> just, I just wanna tell you, just wanna tell you so romantic, really tolerate you. No, I really love you, I really love you. And this is what happens, when this isn't right, this can never be right. And we, we, we take a cheap substitute like tolerance instead of love, what God's given to us. And so there's, there's peace as this gets right. There's shalom, right? But the end of the judge cycles in the book of Judges this 300-year period in all 21 chapters. Again, this goes around six different times, six major judge cycles, just like the days of creation. The end of the judge cycle is not peace and shalom. What is it? Death. The judge dies. The redeemer, the deliverer dies. And what happens? Here we go again. We're getting back on the frenzoid. And we rebel again. We think it's all good and we want to be God. And we reject God and his authority and his claims over our life. And around and around we go. If only, if only we had a a righteous judge, a, a righteous deliverer, a redeemer who would never die. So so even this judge cycle, again, this movement, if you're a visual person around and around, calls out to, you know, this is good, except We need the end of this cycle to be peace and shalom, and we need for death to be removed or a redeemer or deliverer or judge who's righteous, who can defeat death. I wonder who could do that. 
And the book of Judges points us to the righteous judge, of course, King Jesus, who would come and get us off of this ride because he defeats death. He is perfect and righteous. He's not broken like the other judges. And he lives and rules and reigns in eternity, so he gets us off the ride. But there's another movement. So we're, we're cycling, again, the visual. We've got to get off this sin cycle ride. But we're also, at the same time, spiraling. And this is, the, this is the more subversive movement in the book of Judges, that not only are we going around and around, but if you read from, from chapter one all the way through 21, our conclusion today, it's not just that we're repeating this sin-judge cycle where death continues to come into the picture and rebellion, right, and around and around and around. It's that every time we go through it, it's getting darker and darker and darker. And there's sort of three movements here. There's, if you're taking notes, there's deceit, which, by the way, what is the enemy called? He is the great deceiver. He's the liar. Did God really say, did God really say that you can't eat of this fruit? It's a lie, right? And he's deceiving us. And then out of that deceit, out of that lie, if we live out of a lie, which some of us are doing today, we're living and making decisions out of deceit, out of lies, things that are not in accordance with God's truth. And when we live out of deceit, it leads to depravity. And we see all kinds of horrendous things happen out of this. In fact, when you read this final conclusion, chapters 19 through 21, you can't believe the depravity that's captured here. It's horrific. And you look at some of the things in the world and you go, how could another person do that to another human? How could people treat people that way? because of deceit and living out of a lie. And out of that deceit and depravity comes spiritual darkness. It's as if the world is on a a little dimmer switch and it just gets darker and darker and darker. Did you know there's a type of fish that lives at the bottom of the ocean and it's so deep in the ocean that it's never exposed to light? And even though it has optic nerves, it has the physical ability to take in light, those nerves have been frayed and dulled to where they can't do it anymore because they've never been exposed to light. And when we get to the end of the book of Judges and the people of Israel at 1050 BC, just before Saul is inaugurated, God giving them what they want in an earthly king, we see a group of people like these fish, that their spiritual senses have been so dulled that even though they have the capacity to be able to experience light, because they've lived in darkness, it's gotten darker and darker and darker and darker and darker, they're spiritually unable to sense light. And you get that sense when you read Judges 19 through 21. In fact, if you've read it, which some of you have been uh, following along with us in our reading, or if you go and read it this week, Judges 19 through 21, If you haven't read the the rest of the book of Judges to know how we got here, so if you're just crashing into the story after 300 years of this uh, cycling and spiraling, and you get to this narrative for the conclusion of this horrific crime that happens in in chapter 19, you could read and go, this is crazy. You could slam the Bible shut and go, how can this be in the Bible? How, how, How could this happen? And you would miss the cycling and the spiraling that has been happening for 300 years. Because the reason why there's a conclusion like this that's so dark, that's so deceitful, that's so depraved, the reason why is twofold, right? It's compromise 
if you're taking notes here, because it's not any different for us, how could this happen? It's compromise. It's one decision at a time to reject God as king. One decision at a time. But it's worse. It's not just compromise. It's compounded. Okay? Just like interest, a lot of finance people in here, this is a financial town, just like interest compounds, sin compounds. And the more and more I choose to reject God as king and authority over my life, the more that sin compounds in my life. It's like a snowball. And that's what's happening here. There's compromise. It's one choice. Go all the way back to chapter one. God says, take possession of the promised land, which we've talked about. The land was just a physical manifestation of all the spiritual blessings that God wanted to give to his people that he still does today. And we talked about it's one thing for God to give you spiritual blessings that are still available for all of us who are Christ followers today. It's another thing for us to take possession of those said blessings. And the people don't do it. Namely, they don't push out all the evil kings and kingdoms around them. They live among them. And instead of being invited into God's promised land and all of his promises and and bounty, watch this, they invite God to come live with them. So God says, come live with me and come follow me. By the way, that's the call for, uh, on God, uh, of God for all of us in our hearts, is come follow me. That's what Jesus said. Come follow me. Live according to my kingdom principles. Follow me. And we're busy going, no, you, you come follow me. You come follow me, God. And that doesn't work, does it? And that's what we see happening here, this compromise over and over and over again. And it compounds, it builds and builds. And we get to the conclusion here in chapters 19 through 21, and we go, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? Because it's the vivid description of a people who have not just, don't, who not, you know, just don't, don't have a king, like Samuel said. It's not just that they, they don't have a king, it's that they have rejected the king. They've actively volitionally chosen to walk away from God and to say, God, you follow me and come join me in my plans and do what I want you to do. And who is God in that scenario, by the way? I am. I just want your power, God. I just want your blessings. I just want your peace and comfort, but I want it on my terms. It's not by following you and living under your order. It's not by living under your authority. No, you know, and by the way, the scripture's the same way. Some of us treat the scripture this way. It says the, the scriptures have authority over our lives. It's God's word to us. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We live according to God's principles. Some of us go, well, it's kind of 50-50. I take what I can. Someone sent me a picture yesterday. They were uh, up for the UVA basketball game, and they were in the library, I guess, and it was Thomas Jefferson's Bible, which you know what, you know, TJ did, Right? He took out all the passages he didn't like and left the ones that he thought were good. And basically, this is the Bible I like. And some of us do that. And then others of us just, hey, it's just a book, right? And I'm just, you know, it's got some interesting stories, but ultimately, I'm an authority over this. And this is a picture, right? You know, this, this, this of how we live. And God's people here rejecting what he says and his authority and the consequences of that, it's compromise compounded. This is what C.S. Lewis said about this, by the way, in, in Screw Tape Letters. If you ever read Screw Tape Letters, Screw Tape Letters is this description of the enemy demonic forces and their strategy against all of us to, to get us on this cycle of deceit and depravity and darkness and keep us there. 
And this is how uh, C.S. Lewis described the road to hell. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's not a drop off a cliff. It's a gradual decline. A gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Just a glide path. And so if you, if you crash into the end of the story here, you go, what? But if you follow from chapter one all the way here, 300 years of this, just a gradual glide path, one compromise at a time, compounded and compounded. It's the frog in the pot, right? You put a frog into a boiling pot, leaps right out. You put a frog into a lukewarm, it's like, this is nice. It, it feels even better as it heats up. Something smells, it's me. I'm, I'm cooking, and now I'm in a full-blown boil, I'm dead. And when we get to the conclusion here, we're in a full boil. The pot of compromise compounded is boiling over. And if you've left a pot on a stove, unattended, right, and it begins to boil, what happens? It just foams up, it begins to run over, and that's exactly what's happening. They can't keep it in anymore. And for some of us, we've gotten to a point in our life where we have a quiet rebellion going on, which by the way, there is no such thing, but we keep it inside, we hold it in, we say things that are palatable, oh, I'm not an atheist, I'm not an agnostic, I'm an anythingist, I just, you, hey, you do you, and I'll do me, right? But here's the problem, when you do you, and I do me, and they collide, who's, who, who's right? And that's what we see happening here. The result of all this in chapter 19 is this horrific compromise, right? The worst of the worst crimes, you can go and read it for yourself. But it gets even worse. Why does it get worse? Because out of that horrific crime, there's not a repentance and a turning back to God saying, God, oh God, have mercy on us. God, would you help us? Would you forgive us? Would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to get right back into order of your creation and understanding your authority and, and how we need to relate to you and, and then how we relate to other people? Which, what did Jesus say, by the way, about vertical, horizontal? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. All the law can be summarized in this. If you get this right, this will be right. If this isn't right, nothing's right. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And so in chapter 19, there's this horrific crime, but it gets worse because this isn't right. And in chapters 20 and 21, if you go and read it for yourself, it's the cover-up of said crime. So it's Israel's broken, here it is. It's broken people trying to fix broken things. And that never works. It's a person who is completely messed up, so broken, inviting somebody else into the brokenness. And that'll somehow fix me, which some of us think that we'll do. If I just find the right person, if I just make the right friends, if I just get the right job, then it'll fix everything. Nope, it's gonna compound your brokenness. If you can't get this right, if you don't understand the claims of Jesus and grace and faith and relating to God this way through Christ, none of this will ever be right. You'll just be constantly chasing, and some of you are on that, that wheel right now, spinning and spiraling. If I just get, and you fill in the blank, if I just get, then this will be right. Nope. You have to be able to sit yourself with God. And when this gets right, now here's the cool thing. When this gets right, there's nothing else out here that can mess it up. When this gets right with God, then everything else could be chaotic around me and I can have peace. I can have shalom. 
but we see a, a terrible compromise, and then we see it compounded in chapters 20 and 21. It's like a stain in the carpet, and if you don't, you got a dab, right? If you rub, what happens? It just gets right into the car. It gets worse. We see Israel rubbing. It's just, they're, they're rubbing it into the carpet. And it starts like this, and now it's expanding. It's all over the place. And this is, this is how the book ends, okay? I'm not making this up. Go, go read it for yourself. The book ends, like everybody around the carpet, and there's this terrible stain, and they've tried to fix it on their own, and they've made a total mess. There's a civil war with the nation of Israel against the Benjamites. Again, if this isn't right, none of this is going to be right. And they're standing around the carpet, and it's this terrible stain that they've rubbed in, and everyone just goes, uh, okay, yeah. And everyone just starts backing up and going to their own villages and homes so they can live their anythingism in privacy. And Samuel, who's collecting all of this, the narrator summarizes the entire, the the curtain closes with this statement in Judges 21, verse 25, the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, very kind of him, but he goes even further this time. And everyone did, just everyone back up. Everyone just go and do what you think is right. And then we'll see how that works. And the curtain drops. And that's the end of the book. And you go, well, that's not a really good, great, like, Christmas passage. I came here today to hear a Christmas passage. It's, it's the best Christmas passage. Why? The book of Judges should make us run to Christmas. Sprint as fast as you can to the story of Jesus. Because here's the truth. The truth was in those days there was no king, but he was coming. Even in the midst of Israel's rejection of their creator God, the king of kings, God was making plans to come and rescue. And that's what Christmas is. And here's the deal, guys. In this deceit and darkness and depravity, it is the backdrop of Christmas because you cannot know the light of Jesus at Christmas unless you know the darkness of depravity in our world. It's out of darkness that great light comes. And in the darkness of our own world, of our own hearts, in our own rebellion, that's where the light of Jesus crashes in. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said it this way. We read a little bit of this passage during the worship set. In chapter nine, he says this. The people, I love this, the people walking in darkness, and and we're walking in darkness. The people in the book of Judges were walking in darkness. Just like those fish without their optic nerves formed. We're living in darkness, but they've seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In other words, in the backdrop of brokenness has come a great light. And this is the gospel. This is the message of Christmas. That God, the King of Kings, left his throne to come to us, to rescue us, and not only that, to set the world right again. And so we say today, come Lord Jesus, come. To him alone be the glory today.
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he wanted to give his disciples, those of us who follow Jesus, a way to remember, to celebrate, to understand, to proclaim his great sacrifice, the message of Christmas, that the righteous judge was coming to make right what was broken in the world. And that this judge, the episode wouldn't end in death, it would end in resurrection life, eternal life that we could participate in. And so that final night in the upper room, I imagine Jesus shared a lot of meals with his disciples, a lot of bread, a lot of wine, a lot of conversations around the fire, but this night was different. Jesus washed their feet as an example of servant leadership, and he gave them a new command that they love one another. And and then he took bread, just common bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it and he said, this is my body that is given for each and every one of you. And then likewise, he, he took the cup and again, a common cup filled with the most common of elements in the first century, wine. And he said, this is something uncommon tonight. This cup represents a new covenant that I'm making in my blood. The word covenant means promise, a new promise, a new understanding a new way of relating. And Jesus went on to say, this covenant, this promise that I'm making in my blood is this. If you'll give me your life, if you'll trust me, if you'll believe in me, I'll give you my life. And Jesus finished that night and he said, as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim my sacrifice. In other words, you proclaim the gospel that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves and we celebrate his grace and his love and his mercy in our hearts, our hearts that are prone to wonder, deceit and darkness, depravity, we come to the table and we're reminded that our righteous judge came to save us, to get us off the ride, to make us whole for all eternity. The Bible says that when we come to the table, we should prepare our hearts, and and we should. We should confess any sin that we know of in our hearts that we're holding on to, We should ask God to to visit us and come near to us and prepare our hearts and our minds as we come. And so I wanna give you a few moments to do that and then in the next few moments of, of quiet that you would confess anything that you need to to the Lord, that you would ask God to be close and near to you, Emmanuel, God with us, and prepare your heart to come to the table today. So let's pray together now. Create in us a clean heart, O oh God. King Jesus, would you renew a right spirit within us? Please don't cast us away. Don't cast us off. But instead, because of your faithfulness, your love, your grace, would you today, for each of us, restore, renew the joy, the hope, the anticipation of our rescue and salvation. It's in your name that we pray, amen.
that you're gonna be dismissed by row to come forward to receive from a common table today. I just wanna say, you know, this isn't a Presbyterian table, it's not a Baptist table, Pentecostal, Methodist. This is the table of Christ. So if you're a Jesus follower today, this table is for you. You know, the scriptures talk about coming together as a body of Christ, as those who follow Jesus, who proclaim him to be our king, celebrating the table together. And so the way we choose to do that here is to, you'll be served the the bread, which is gluten-free, by the way, and you'll dip it into the cup, and then you'll receive it, and then you'll just, you'll head back to your seat. And I would just say today, if you're not a Christ follower, I just want you to hear from me, from my heart. I'm so grateful that you're here today, and I, I want you to keep coming and exploring and, and, and talking about who Jesus is. The most important question we could ever ask ourselves is, who is Jesus? And so, so glad that you're here today. But I do want to say that this table is for those who are Christ followers. But we want you to come forward. We want to pray for you. So if you're at a place where you'd say, I'm not a Jesus follower yet, or I'm just not in a place in my life to receive the table, I'm gonna ask you to come forward and you can just cross your arms and we just wanna say a simple prayer over you today. You'll be dismissed by row and then you'll head back to your, your row and we'll, we'll finish today together. This is the table of God for you, the people of God. I invite you now to come forward and partake of it.
Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, an appropriate way for us to end the word Emmanuel means God with us. And that's what we're celebrating in this season. And just to say, next week we're going to start a, a short little study of Matthew 1 and 2 called The Way in a Manger. And we'll talk about who Jesus is as Savior, Shepherd. And on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about Jesus as King. And I do want to just mention our service times on Christmas Eve if you're making plans. Uh, for you and for your, your circle that you want to bring with you. Uh, we'll start at 1 o'clock and have services at 1, uh, 2.30, 4, I'm going to get this right, and 5.30. 1, 2.30, 4, and 5.30. So uh, we want to make space for your family and friends to come and be with us on that night. We've got a great service planned. Uh, you'll want to be here for it. And we want you to be praying about somebody that you can invite and bring on your arm to church. Over and over again, uh, people who don't attend church, when they're asked, what would it take for you to go to church? They say one thing over and over again, if somebody I trust would invite me. So Christmas Eve is three weeks from yesterday, if you can believe it. And so I want to challenge you over the next three weeks to be praying about somebody that you can bring with you to one of the services 
on Christmas Eve. If you're looking to get connected here today, I want to encourage you to stop by Connection Point on your way out. We've got a team that would love to give you a gift and, and help you to get on a team or in a group here and, and call New City Church your home. And we would long for that to happen. If you'd like prayer, I'll be up front afterwards along with members of our care team. We'd love to pray for you if there's something you want to respond to from the message. If you want to talk about how to start a relationship with Jesus or something in your life that you want to pray for, we'd be glad to do that. And then giving is a part of worship for us. And I do want to say for those of you who call New City your home, this is an opportunity to give as an act of worship or responding to how God's made himself known today. You can do that online or you can do that in the green boxes uh, as you leave today. If you're visiting with us, please don't feel obligated to give. We just love that you were here and I hope this service was a gift to you. If you'd extend your hands for a blessing as we go today. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. What an awesome thing. May the Lord be gracious unto you and lift up his attention upon you. And may the Lord today and all throughout this week fill you with his peace, his hope, and his love. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen, amen. Love you, New City.